Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 937 with Brian Duncan. If you want someone to be loyal or become excited about your establishment, make something discoverable that they can walk away and say, guess what I did last night? Yeah. What did I do? Or where have I been that I I was so um, relaxed about putting myself in their hands? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Looking to make your life easier? Then Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor targets, and keep your entire team connected. With drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. In fact, I haven't come across a restaurant tour using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Restaurant Unstoppable listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S.com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. Today's episode is brought to you by Pop Menu, and restaurants have been hit hard over the past last years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever, trying to meet the expectations of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like... Can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro and they are launching their first time ever 60 day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, founder of Down to Earth Wine Concepts, LLC, Brian Duncan. Brian, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? Of course. Yes. uh, (laughs) Super excited to have you here. Of course. We share a mutual friend. 
uh, Juliet Gus with Ethic Suites. And yes. when she found out I was coming to Chicago, she said, you got to get Brian on the show. And I really do let my network steer who I talk to. Word of mouth, I think to this day, is the most trusted way to, to find people mm-hmm. and to make an example of people. And she didn't have enough good things to say. She, she couldn't stop. Well, saying great things about it's you. Very kind of it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm super excited for today's conversation. I cannot wait to kind of tell the people more about you, who we're talking to. I know in your story you have at least three, I think I saw James Berry nominations for uh, for your wine programs and what you've done. Uh, you've worked, you owned your own restaurant for, for 2000, like, or 99 to like 2013, and that's where you kind of uh, – it was been 36 where you really got yes, that Yeah, that and then we had uh, three additional restaurants. Three additional restaurants after, on top of that. After been 36. Yeah, so. and then today you're kind of just pivoting to kind of share your knowledge with the next generation as a public speaker and as a, an expert on wine, the world of wine and wine yeah, service. most definitely. So we're in good company right now. I, can, <laughs> I cannot wait to pull back those layers, but like, let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling mm-hmm. with a success quote or mantra, what do you got for us? Well, I um, what if you're you have to be curious, and uh, you humility is a powerful tool. Uh, humility is actually a strength, which is counter to what most people believe. If you have the kind of persona that enters a room to uh, be poured into then you can get filled but if you go in thinking that you know everything there's no room Mm. yeah what is when you say humility what does that word humility mean to you humility is uh is positioning yourself to constantly being learned to be a learner yeah and to respect and honor other people um and it's the otherness that um, so so much is missing. Um, we've got had all kinds of influences, technology certainly being one of the main ones, that have um, erased uh, some of our manners and decorum. And uh, because we're click happy, the humanity is feels like it's decreasing. Mm. And, well, the technology just keeps going, mm. and the. The more the quicker the technology goes, the less hum- humanity I see. I would not disagree with that, and yeah. I, you've, it's funny you mentioned that because I find myself in a position where it's my job to go out there, learn, and share what I'm learning. Part of that is learning what's happening in, in the world of technology, right, and the opportunities there to promote ourselves and to market ourselves. But on the back end of that, I'm like, that, that's a double edged sword because on the back end of that, like. Yeah, there's benefits, but there's also a lot of negative things that are, are yeah, side effects certainly. that I think in the world of marketing, in the world of, of public speaking and people promoting their knowledge, you don't get that that side of the, the dialogue. Yes, these tools can help you grow your business. Yes, we're collectively becoming a more transactional society as a result of it. And what does that mean for all of us? Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Very important stuff. So, um, so curiosity, stay curious, stay humble, stay open so you can be filled. Yeah. That's what you say. I love mm-hmm. that. A beautiful way to get this thing started. This thing started. And um, I'm tempted to get right into your story, man. But you poured this glass of wine for us. And I know that your claim to fame and one of the things that was really important to you when you were a practicing psalm was to make wine approachable. Yeah. Was to to not to take the pretension out of it and to like 
to like educate people? What's going through your mind as I'm saying this? So uh, there were so many facets of that that um, one of the goals when I w- was trying to open Bin Thirty Six was I made a punch list of all the things I hated about how wine was trotted out and how it was treated, um, how guests were made to feel self-conscious um, or even in some cases silly um, or um, unsophisticated. And so I went down and I created this list, this punch list of all the things that I didn't enjoy about the wine experience in restaurants and the other things about restaurants that were just unpleasant to me. And I built that uh, as my filter for every decision that was made, everything Mm. from the architecture, interior architecture, how does the guest move uh, throughout the space? um, Are there things that we're designing that feel uncomfortable, even though we don't know? Here's an obvious one. The building that we were in, the windows were... Uh, painted in so you couldn't see from the outside so when you go to a restaurant or a public place and it's blacked out it feels exclusive Mm. and so what we did was open up that space it was 13,000 square feet wow and we had blonde wood floors and it just felt good it felt like you were almost on a beach yeah not in the middle of the Midwest. Welcome. Just, yeah, and one of the things that people said, especially women, was that they felt safe there, mm. even though they could sit at a bar. So that meant a lot to me. Uh, to me, uh, the, um, in the beginning, we wanted people to learn about wine in an interactive way and not make it so stiff. So it was very playful, uh, there were 50 wines by the glass. Every uh, menu item had a recommendation, which you rarely see in restaurants. Back was, in 1999 is when you 1999. started. 1999. So very progressive. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's was, there was such a successful formula to that because you give people choices and they actually are really uh, tasting things that they wouldn't have chosen on their own. So we did wine flights with that. And there were always progressions and there was logic to it. I always felt like the uh, wine flight was poorly presented. People would have wines in a flight that um, had no relationship or theme to them. So we constantly were creating these categories. Just filling in the glass for the sake of filling the glass. Yeah, fun stuff. You know, one was called Bubbles. So it was, you know, sparkling wine and champagne from around the world. Sexy Reds, which speaks to texture, uh, speaks to, you know, people can relate. You say, oh, okay, I get it. And then, um, you know, we would use those things to draw people in, uh, to entice them. And people made discovery. If you want someone to be loyal or become excited about your establishment, make something discoverable that they can walk away and say, guess what I did last night? Yeah. Yeah. What did I do? Or where have I been that I I was so um, relaxed about putting myself in their hands? Yeah. In my research of you, you you mentioned you you want to be educating your guests your team without them feeling like that they're being educated and your guests though. And that's such a huge thing. But what happens when we learn something, we tie that memory, that knowledge 
to the place, to the source, yeah. the person that, that, so in a way it's, it's a kind of a way of marketing that, that knowledge you're yes, giving them is, yeah. is, is something that they're going to, it's an experience mm-hmm. and that they can go on and share. And every time they go on and share that, they're like, I learned this, I've been 36. Now you have that, that word of mouth too, yeah. that's echoed. But, but learning is an amazing experience by, by yeah. nature. We're curious. We like to feed our curiosity. We like to, it's one of the, those, those, uh, it's, it's high on the list of Maslow's hierarchy of needs of, personal growth of learning like we need it we literally need yeah, it most so definitely. so leverage that for sure so it's that extended into uh staff training uh one of my big dreams was to get the entire kitchen staff in any of my restaurants into these uh wine training sessions i thought boy you're gonna really just rocket when you have people who are preparing the food having a better appreciation how it's going to companion on yep. the table with food yeah so um the that was that was really wonderful one of the early inspirations i got was out of frustration with uh my wine team prior to uh ben 36 or the service staff i should say and that was uh they were not stimulated by me you know, I was giving them facts and giving them experience, but they weren't holding on to anything. So one day I marched them to Borders Books uh, on Michigan Avenue between shifts and walked them through the books that I was using. There was no Internet at that time. There, you know, you actually had to op- get a book and open it. And I showed them the books that I thought were really exceptionally written. And as we were walking through, people thought I was doing a Borders tour. So they were kind of following him behind us. We got back to the restaurant and I said, now here's what's going to happen. I'm tired of teaching. You guys are going, you, you're, you're so bright. You're so enthusiastic. I want to see what kind of uh, information you can bring, share, and draw out of each other. Mm. And so I had a bucket and I filled two names at a time and they were the teams. And each week they had to do a presentation. I had to approve it. If uh, they didn't select one of mine, but I ended up getting a group of people that were so engaged and so hungry. I gave them access to uh, winemaker friends of mine, you know, Loire Valley wines or uh, wines from Washington State and Oregon. And they would call these people up and it just became just really exciting. They all frowned in the beginning and thought I was being mean until they owned this material and then owned how to get access to it. That teaching someone how to fish is basically it. And uh, so I've applied, I think, creative ways and heaven forbid, fun ways to get people interested in things. And um, that has been gold for me. Yeah. I can't help but think of like the great game of business mentality. Jack Stack in the book, The Great Game of Business, this idea of like bringing people in and making it a collective. It doesn't have to be a one way street. We have so much potential energy in our staff, yeah. in our people that if you tap into that, if you open the doors and you say, here's an open door to, to contribute, to educate me, to educate your team, what's going on there? What's, what's really, what's happening on a psychological level in your opinion that, that takes that to the next level. It takes the experience to the next level. Makes me think of a, uh, uh encounter I had with a young woman. She was an actress and she had worked with us for several years. And I, as you know, I, I expect people to pursue their dreams. And uh, she, she was one of the people that I, I really 
especially enjoyed how, you know, she what she brought to the uh, the restaurant in terms of her uh, decorum with people and interacting with people. And she went to work uh, at another restaurant for a while. And I she came into the bar and I said, how you doing? And she said, great. I, I said, how you like your new, you know, new spot? And she says, oh, it's OK. I said, well, what, why, why do you say it like that? She says, they don't care about us. Mm. And I said, How, what do you mean by that? She said, they don't teach us anything. Mm. And th- I mean, again, it's, that's a eureka moment. Yeah. I go to a lot of restaurants where the, there's only one person, only the sommelier or wine director is the person that will interact with you on wine if you can get one. And then the service staff is there every single day. And they don't really know anything. And I think it makes them mute, mm-hmm. intellectually mute when it comes to the wines, as though they're not able to comprehend and absorb the material. Yeah. And that's completely untrue. Mm. So we, we did some fun stuff uh, with our teams. I, I remember uh, pre-opening Ben 36, and I didn't get to hire anyone. I always thought that was a dream of mine. I'd hire these, you know, wine-savvy people. Well... People didn't know what Ben 36 was. So the idea that they would be wine savvy and just kind of, you know, come on board, it didn't really happen. So I got to, we went into the hotel ballroom uh, where the property was and did the first orientation. And I tell people it was like, I felt like I was in a Spike Lee movie, you know, when they're they're moving. You just, you know, <laughs> they use a moving sidewalk yeah. or something. But I, on my way to my first orientation, I could almost see clouds, you know, and mist in yeah. the. So uh, I introduced myself and explained my passion for food and wine and how excited I was to get to know them. And then I asked them each to introduce themselves. And um, the answers were shocking. Uh, one young lady got up and she said, my name is Jasmine and I'm a club kid and I don't know nothing about wine. <laughs> and I remember going home that night. Uh, I was not sleeping very much because of the, you know, beat the clock trying to get open. Yep. And I had this strong voice say to me, if you can't get these kids excited, your concept isn't going to work anyway. Mm. And I'm like, I know that wasn't my own thought, but it was like this guiding principle for me. And uh, I remember having a very frustrating time getting them to, to vocabulary for wine. And uh, so <laughs> we did one day, I said, I'm sick of talking about, you know, wine aromas and flavors. And we were sniffing and sipping. And I said, who can name a hair care product? that you really like and that you would recommend to other people. And one of the quiet girls raised her hand and she says, I use this stuff called mop and you can use it as a, a stabilizer. You can blow dry with, and she got into this mm. thing and it's, then they started arguing with different brands. And I said, okay, enough about hair care. Cause obviously I don't need, need yeah, that. I can relate. I said, <laughs> um, what about sandwich, your favorite sandwich? And I said, I need to know the bread. I need to know the uh, lettuce, if there's any on it. What are the accompaniments? You crust, know, no crust. Cheese, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, they started in, 
And I got, one of the guys described a Burger King Whopper and made me want one that, right that minute. And uh, so it was things like that. You start where people are. With what's say familiar. You can, yeah, you yeah. can apply this here. And uh, what, we, what we did, I think, that was, was groundbreaking was we sold wine retail. Of the 50 wines that we sold by the glass, they were all available at retail. So I said, if you're not selling at least a case of wine a night, you're really cheating yourself and you're leaving money on mm-hmm. the table because they've already... They're here for that. Yeah, and you, you, it's your responsibility to go get a reaction from them, just like your table check back for food. You need to get the guests say, to say that they enjoyed, they liked something, uh, and get them, if you get them to say something good, they're going to leave saying that to someone else. Yeah. Don't miss that opportunity. Yeah. We had little hang tags with my wine descriptions on everything at the bottom were food recommendations. I mean, we, that was what was frustrating for me about experiencing wine bars or restaurants. That it's kind of arrogant to have only the, the vintage, and if that's correct, the price and maybe where it comes from. The, the, the guests should, should have more than that. Yeah, it's such an experience. They should yeah. know what they're getting themselves into. And if the chef and the wine person are in the building all day, you act like, you know, what are they, uh, running from one another? You guys should be inside each other's heads. Yeah. Yes. And it's th- the same experience. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a dance, right? Yeah. Uh, Brian, yes, man. I'm loving the conversation. <laughs> and just to bring back to the surface, this, this, this all stemmed from, you know, what happens, what's going on psychologically is the question I asked mm-hmm. you and that you took us on this beautiful journey. But really, if I could distill it, you're giving people an opportunity to be seen when you, when you bring them into the, opportunity, into the process, yes. right? And you let them be a part of the process and contribute to the process. If they are contributing to the process, they are going to feel like they, they own it more mm-hmm. they show up in a different way and they're growing right yeah. so you're tapping two of those maslow maslow's hierarchy of needs elements of being seen being valued like you said the, when you asked the young lady she said they don't see us when you bring them in you educate them you're seeing them and just that alone yeah. is so powerful and then to to help them grow as professionals super super powerful as well yeah. on a psychological getting way. um Getting your teams invested in your business is the goal. Yeah. And the re- there's several reasons, and they're, they're, not, they're not selfish. One of the things, uh, team training things that I did was uh, to get people to speak about their own personal interests. Didn't have anything to do with wine or food. And people would discover something about their fellow bartender, yeah. server, that they had no idea, like, What's the craziest thing that you feel like you've ever done or the weirdest job you've ever done? Um, and, and the stories were amazing. Some, some talented people, some of them artists, and some of them were aspiring writers. And uh, these were their dreams. And I wanted to see them, you know, r- arrive at their dreams and aspirations. So we encouraged that. But again, back to the, the thing about being poured into or pouring I, when I was in Madrid for uh, Hospitality Innovation Planet in 2020, my actual uh, topic was hospitality is uniquely positioned to make the world a better place. And I used the uh, example of the letter P. And I said, I love P's. And my favorite P word is purpose. 
And I said, one of my least favorite P words is problem. And I said, so I bring, when I have a problem in my restaurant, I don't let it stay a problem. I decide to make a project out of it. And I get the input from the team. So now they're actually, instead of, you know, uh, complaining in the, the waiter station or after they go out drinking their tip money up after work, they're actually realizing that we have the power, P, to change this situation. I don't care what it is. It could be employee meal or it could be pro- approaching guests. You want them invested so that you maybe never had to fire anyone. Mm. Somebody that came in later was so dedicated to raising the bar for everyone and making sure every guest and every guest that comes through the door is yours. And having that investment mentality changes the culture. And the culture is my big C word yes. yeah. uh, that in your business. So they behave differently. They talk differently. Uh, they were enthusiastic. They, were, they didn't want to miss something in terms of uh, pulling the lid off for the guests. Because your service staff knows more about what's going on there than anybody. Yeah. And they felt invested in the products when they were talking about things. It had to come. I say, you have less than two minutes to establish yourself as competent at the table. And what you want to do is go to the table, not um, passive, but you also you want to go with enthusiasm, uh, friendly approach and say, you know, if uh, if I were you, there's a special tonight that I think is going to go really fast. And, you know, just capture their attention instead of saying, hi, I'm Marie and I, you know, I'm going to be your server. Um, and then the guest knows they need to take over at that point. Yeah. And then you have chaos because when you have one more, one, one more than one director of a symphony, then you've got noise. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this. Some, Great stuff, man. Somebody has to lead the way. You're dropping gold right now. And I wasn't expecting to get this deep this soon, but I'm not stopping you, man, because you're on a tear and I'm loving the information you're sharing us. I would love to, you poured us this, this glass of wine. Yes. And when you're sitting with somebody who is as well known and respected as you are in the wine world and as well, I don't know, just I want to go through this experience with you. I want to taste this glass with you. And I would love for the, just to to document this experience of what, what, you know, take us, pretend like I'm a new, you know, somebody who's new to wine, for example, or somebody who you're, you're training to say, this is how you look at wine. This is how you would taste wine. This is how you would talk about it. And I I just want to experience this with you and my listeners. Certainly. What what do we have? Uh, The the wine, uh, the grape is Chenin Blanc, which is, uh, been made famous in the Loire Valley, its home, and uh, it's an underutilized uh, wine in that it's so fruit food friendly that um, and it's got juicy mouth watering acidity to it that it um, it's a great companion for so many things. Um, the color it's it's a honey golden uh, color. The um, aromas if you get your nose into the glass. I get sort of white peach and apricot. Oh, yeah. Honeysuckle. A lot of floral qualities to it. And then the palate, what I would have them do is I'd count to three and have them take a sip and hold it until I told them to swallow. So one, two, three. Okay. 
I'll like, swallow. Okay. It's just swallowed. So you're lapping your tongue up against the roof of your mouth. Yeah. How do I know you're doing it? The noise I'm making. <laughs> Especially if this is such an auditory. If you're one of those people that hate the sound of people lapping yeah. their mouths, I'm so sorry. Yeah. But yeah, I'm making the noise. You can see me doing it. So that's the my introduction to acid that um, acidity's uh, picked up on the sides of the tongue. Um, in the very tip of your tongue, you have the perception of fruit or sweetness. Yeah. And that's the only place you do. Then just behind that is where you perceive saltiness or brininess. In the middle of your tongue is where you would experience how weighty or heavy or light something is. In other ways, words I like to uh, always give a comparison. Think of uh, light-bodied as non-fat milk. Think of uh, medium-bodied as whole milk. And think of full-bodied as uh, heavy cream. Yeah. So the thoughts that were going through my head as I was tasting it, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll be honest. It was hard to focus on the flavor because I was also listening to you. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a lesson in itself. Try it again. You, well, I did feel like it, it was it was gentle but complex. It was what was coming through my mind, mm-hmm. like those words, where it's they're, they're, the flavors are very delicate in the sense that almost like almost feminine i hate you know but the, but the delicate in that sense but layers you, you know what i'm saying yeah um listening to you talk i was focused on your words but i think there's a lesson there that if you're having somebody taste just kind of let them taste it and let them be in that moment because they might not be able to focus on the words that you're saying and mm-hmm. the experience at the same time most certainly yeah, yeah most certainly uh i think probably uh, I would describe what you the word you used was feminine. I think uh, I would say elegant. Um, it's gentle. Yeah. And it, it just it ha- if you're starting for an a introductory wine or a wine that you want to serve at the early part of the meal, this is perfect. Yeah. For I- that. This goes with practically any appetizer, everything from shellfish to uh, charcuterie, uh, you know. Sea, any kind of seafood, salads, um, spicier foods, smoked foods, yeah. um, salty foods, and things like that. Uh, spicy cuisine. I love this uh, with Indian cooking um, mm-hmm. and Thai cuisine. Uh, really does know its way around the table. Yeah. You don't have to overthink it. Mm-hmm. But I love what you did there. You started with telling us the history of the wine, where it comes from. Uh, you let me experience. You didn't give me any. And you let me. You let me experience it first before you shared your experience, yeah. right? You let it be my own experience, my own relationship. And you may have a different vocabulary. Yeah. You know, and I like, I just want you talking about it and reacting to it. Mm-hmm. There isn't a, a right or wrong uh, in that regard uh, because I believe the longer you engage, once you're shown how to taste and um, engage wine properly, I'm not talking about like at a dinner but if you're doing wine classes, that's different. People say, well, you know, wine buyer, that's, being, that's really cool. You must taste a lot of wine. I do. I also spit, so I've had a long career. Yeah. And it, the idea is not to get a buzz, but to get information from mm. the wine. And so you go through this process of uh, almost process of elimination uh, where you rule out certain things to, so you can understand where the wine comes from, you know, what, uh, what, how it's going to perform uh, when people are talking about. That's why the, the interaction between the guests and the staff is so vital 
because people are sometimes not even capable of expressing what they really want. They contradict themselves uh, quite often. And so the, one of the smarter things that we did at Ben 36 was we had a liberal uh, pouring policy where if people seem frustrated or you, di- you needed a reference point, uh, our staff was encouraged to go to the bar and pour, pour something, a, a taste of something, and put it down on the table. When I first opened, uh, people were kind of nervous, and uh, you'd come by and offer your assistance, and they'd say, no, we're just looking. Well, you're not just looking because you're sitting in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, we wanted to uh, make people comfortable. So I'd come back every once in a while and just set a uh, tasting of something on the table and walk away yeah. without saying anything. Yeah. Did you like that? Yes. No. And then like they, would look, they were looking and they would wave. They said, we didn't order this. I said, yeah, but did you taste it? <laughs> <laughs> and the idea was, first of all, it breaks the ice. Yeah. And it does. Now, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, well, this is kind of fun. Yeah. And a dialogue starts. Yeah. yeah. And then they could uh, have a reaction. Uh, there's a very wonderful um, uh what I guess I'm trying to think of, he's um, a sketch artist, and uh, he also does cartoons, Jonathan Plotkin. Mm. And he came in the restaurant uh, one day, and I was in the office at that moment, and uh, one of the servers came and said, one of my guests wants to speak to you. And I went down, and our flight maps had individual circles for each of the wines. There were four wines in a flight. And... He had drawn faces on each one of the circles, and in his, which was his reactions. Oh. Like he had one guy that like turned his nose up, and then he had another guy that was like eyes were bright. <laughs> and I still have that somewhere, but um, and I still know him uh, today. That, that would, to me, I was like, that's it. Yeah. There, people are getting it. They're really getting. And I said, I, I'm glad you even, I know that you found something that you like, but I'm even more glad that you didn't like that. And now you'll be able to explain why. Yeah. In a medium through which you are comfortable communicating to yeah. and explaining and, and, and making the connection or at least communicating your perspective of that experience. Yeah. Uh, I'm loving this, man. I really am. Um, I want to come back to this this level of granular detail about the experience. Also, I really would love to dive into more of the the business perspective of building a wine program, making sure. a profitable wine program. But before we get into that nitty-gritty side of the business, I want to kind of just dive more into who you are and how you got here. We're kind of going a little bit out of order today, but I'm loving it. And I'm just kind of letting you do your thing. I'm out of order. Yeah, man. I love chaos. I thrive in chaos. So I know you're a graduate of um, Illinois State University, correct? Mm -hmm. Did you know at this point that that you were going to commit your life to hospitality? No, absolutely not. My thing from from childhood, I always thought that – I would be successful in some kind of business and then open a restaurant to do what I really enjoy doing. I was fascinated by hospitality, uh, first starting within my family. And uh, my mother's side of the family is very large. And when we would have family gatherings, the food was insanely good. Mm. And certain people made certain dishes and uh, they had to be done you know, a certain way. But what used to really turn me on was watching my parents and the family uh, prepare for people to come. My mother uh, entertained with an 
unbridled, uh, generous, you know, opulence and the fussing over, you know, the silver and these plates and that kind of thing. And it turned me on as a kid. My dad was an accountant at the time and he entertained people for business. Mm -hmm. And so my dad always knew good restaurants here in the city, Chicago. And I got turned on by that. But um, I was waiting tables all the time that I was in college and uh, afterwards and moved to Chicago and really began to see the, the American, uh, American cuisine sort of start to show its face and uh, people dabbling in regional American cuisine. And I was hooked. I was just hooked. And uh, some famous restaurateurs, uh, Charlie Trotter, uh, Sean McLean and uh, Paul Kahn. Some of those people uh, came, some a little later. But this fascination with incredible ingredients. And then at the same time, the late 80s, uh, the American wine producers in Oregon, Washington, and California were really sort of getting in their stride. And I decided, uh, not the wine course, but I wanted to become a chef. Okay. And I convinced myself. So I don't think you were expecting this, no, but I'll I share this. <laughs> so I uh, decided that I wanted to go to the California Culinary Academy okay. um, because it was in San Francisco in proximity to wine country. Got it. And I went out there and there was 92. And I, there was no work to be had. I mean, nothing. And... Um, I was frustrated. Really? No work for I, what? For restaurants. Really? I would show up for a bartending position. There'd be 50 people there. Wow. And uh, Man, have times changed. <laughs> yeah. And this, I was there a month. Yeah. Like my full-time job was looking for a job. Yeah. And I was afraid that uh, I was going to run out of money and I didn't want to run back home. So I was trying to think, how can I you know, do something else? And I'm looking in the paper and there, you ever see those... Uh, what they call them at the time they were um alaska fishing boats yeah and you'd sort of you'd be in a rent-free zone and i thought i could recoup my my money and still go back to uh to san francisco and go to culinary school was the word classifieds or yeah. job postings yeah i'm not sure if classifieds it was in the classified yeah, yeah, section yeah, yeah. or job opportunities yeah. and i thought you know how how bad could it be yeah this is before they had any of those shows yeah. showing you just how bad <laughs> it can be so uh, uh two friends of mine we all decided to do it and uh we had to sell a bunch of our stuff and buy some gear and then show up at this this dock and this thing was housed 80 people. It was a moving factory uh, processor. And um, it was insane. I got picked to work an 18-hour shift the minute I got wow. we got off the, uh, we got off the plane. And uh, it was the best and one of the worst experiences of my life. And I say that because it was uniquely positioned to teach me what I was made of. Mm. I mean, everything from what kinds of things that I could endure physically. Uh, there was a lot of emotional uh, abuse, um, occupational abuse. Uh, there were they would play around with the the shifts, uh, 
So six on, six off was a 24-hour period. You work 12 hours, but only six at a time. And then you're trying to force your body to sleep the other six hours. Mm. Then there was 12 on, 12 off. And then there were times they would just throw a kick shift at you. And uh, at one point, we they were treating us so bad with food and things like that, that this older older couple was on the boat and they were about to lose their home and they came to, to you know make make some money and I'm save assuming their it house. was a good paycheck though and it sounds like there was a probably good pay associated. It with was this. good pay if you if you caught fish. Yeah, that yeah. was the thing. And they were never going to go to they weren't going to um, to dock because they were afraid that we would jump ship because they were treating us so poorly. Yeah. And uh, so I organized a strike. Wow. And I wrote this letter. Uh, to the captain, and uh, it had to all be done anonymously because you could easily get put in uh, shackles. Yeah. And uh, anyway, his big deal was he didn't know there was anybody intelligent enough on the board to write the letter, <laughs> and he was all ticked off, but we refused to offload the product, and uh, we had them up against the wall. And uh, so finally, they, they weren't they weren't sending the money, you know, depositing our, the money that they said they were, they owed us and uh, a lot of other things. So while I was on that, that boat, my, uh, a very good friend of mine, John David's family, leased a restaurant space. And our dream was to work together anyway. So they're waiting for us. You know, when we got off was this new project, my first restaurant with him. And uh, I just, after coming off of the boat, uh, not only was I in the best physical shape of my life. How long did you do this? I was three and a half months, and that was as long as you could All do it. All you needed it. to get in shape, right? <laughs> Tossing 50-pound bags of frozen fish uh, for 10 hours, 12 hours a day will put you in, get you in shape. But it also um, made me realize that I was capable of doing anything. If I could survive that, then I could do anything. And it br- gave me a whole different uh, motivation and perspective. Uh, for what I wanted to pursue. And so I started uh, very uh, specifically trying to align myself or learn from chefs whose food I admired and who seemed to have interesting concepts. And uh, that really sort of got things going. And as that developed, the wine thing started to resurface and I started teaching in some of the restaurants that I was uh, waiting tables at and doing something extra and was in love with that, mm. you know, and uh, came back to Chicago. And when uh, did you come back to Chicago? This was 92. Okay. So seven years before opening your first yeah. place. You didn't own a restaurant before this, did you? No. Okay. No. You're still working. No, my first it. restaurant was a 13,000 square foot restaurant <laughs> yeah, in downtown Chicago. <laughs> so that's the funny because you were asking about financing, but I'll yeah. share that. Yeah. One of the things was uh, I'd heard about this restaurant called Spruce. Okay. And kids, different people said to me, I see your your name written all over that place. And I went to uh interview there and they were very, very busy. I believe they had been open six months and they were also getting the kind of press that any restaurant would be enviable. Really young chef. I think he was 24 at the time. Keith Luce, incredibly talented. He had been the sous chef at the White House and the press just loved that. And he was doing really unique food. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous restaurant. And 
the uh, general manager said, well, she said, I'll give you a call. And I said, okay. I said, but if you um, hire me, I'll bake the best sweet potato pie you've ever had in your life. And uh, I didn't hear from her. And then a few days later, I said, I better call. And I called and she says, no, nah. she said, I'm really busy. I have a bartender that's a musician and he's going to Japan and I need to hire somebody. I said, what about me? <laughs> and I baked her that pie and I went in there and I got that job. And it was great because they were passing the, the wine responsibility for ordering around to different managers who didn't really have the time. And they, uh, I started doing it because I started noticing some mistakes and uh, what products were coming in. And, uh, the owner, uh, Dan Sachs, uh, after I started to get inside the chef's head, we started really getting the food and wine pairing thing going and started to get some national recognition for that and sort of the, the multi-course tasting menu, but not as elongated as some of them have become, you know, 20, yeah. 20 25 courses. And... Um, Chef Luce was brilliant. He would he could conceive a menu out of his head without writing a thing down. And so I used to dictate the menu. And not only were was it cohesive and delicious, but he would write in progression. And that was like a real learning moment for me about the progression in a meal. You can't go at food and wine pairing like uh, William Tell trying to nail an apple. You have to look at what comes before it mm. and what comes after it. And it's like creating a, a piece of music. You know, you have crescendos and you want the end to be memorable or a movie that has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Same things with a book. And there has to be substance in between, but it's a journey. Mm. And that was a quantum shift. It shifts and everything. Yeah, totally. and I was able to teach that. Mm. More importantly, I was if I was the only one that was able to do that, how, how selfish, how um, sad it would be for the people that worked with us. I wanted people to be better when they left than they were when they came to yeah. work for us. It sounds like one of your strengths is just translating experience, yeah. communicating experience, and using analogies and perspective to deliver the experience. Yeah. Uh, and, it's not, and for you, it sounds like it started with actually writing food like you said um i can't remember the, the word you used but you dictated or you, you would write yeah the- when when um the chef was uh doing a new seasonal menu uh he would he i just would write down what he was saying yeah and uh transcribing the the menu yeah almost. and so some of that i brought into um the descriptions for the wines by the glass uh, that you know, I was trying to look for real time. If you're tasting something and reading something at the same time, I the place was so big. I thought I'm going to need roller skates to get around here and interact with these guests because I'd never worked in a, a place that large. Yeah, and so that had me kind of nervous in the beginning. So I wrote wine descriptions. We're that, still talking about the spruce, correct? Yeah. Okay. But uh, I was I'm so straddling that and been 36 because yeah. they they're really kind of related. Yeah. In that, way but uh i wanted descriptions that were visual like make people think or have little boxes above their head and that it was in real time that whatever i had been experiencing when i tasted it the first time if i could you know write that in there as they're doing it then yeah i was still at every table so even so if you're taking the glass it's it's you know first you're observing it is the i'm assuming is that how you would 
talk about maybe what it looks like. Yeah. And then from there, you would go to the nose. Color. Right. Uh, and nose. Then, and then it's the initial flavor, the, the, the first, like, pop. And then what? How does it finish? You know, so yeah, the so story goes through. from front to back. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it really because if you're only experiencing fruitiness or sweetness in the front, and it really doesn't have that, you're not going to notice. It's not going to be something that you come away with. And again, the 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 part the the apple the applicable. I can't speak this morning. Maybe it's the wine. <laughs> the the part that applies to the industry is. The significance of this part of the conversation is when writing a menu and taking people on that journey, not just putting down the ingredients, but taking them through the experience, through the perspective, the order through which they experience it mm-hmm. was a very powerful way to describe something or to put something on a menu. Is that the key takeaway here? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the engaging. So it's not just words on a page. Yeah. Remember how I was saying how arrogant it is to just put down your a vintage and the where it came from yeah. and all and a price. how much it costs yeah yeah like you have still have no information yeah what am I what am I about to commit to and I think well, most I think restaurants could do work a lot harder yeah. in that regard and that's why no very few people have done it because fifty wines by the glass that's that were a constantly project. changing <laughs> and um, the the distributor uh, community had to get used to the amount of wine that we were actually selling you know we were going through. Uh, one to three to some cases, five cases of some of those wines, there were no dogs. Because when you attach them in the flight category or you're pairing at least two recommendations with every dish, yeah, everything's moving. Mm. Everything's moving. Mm. So you were, I was able to sell things that people hadn't even heard of. I remember one of the distributors, importers, saying to me, you're selling more Gruner Veltliner than anybody in the country. Yeah, wow. I was like, and he said, I don't think all those people know how to even <laughs> pronounce it. And so it was the way that the menus were designed. I love that. And I think there's an underlying message here, which isn't so obvious for our listeners who haven't had the time to research you before this conversation. But you mentioned Dan Sachs. He was your future business partner. Yeah. So this, so this, and something else that I think, so the underlying message that I'm picking up is you didn't, you, you weren't forced to get in there and just start writing these decisions. Like, no. These descriptions. You took the initiative. You, you, you owned that project. Yeah. And what happens if you treat something like you own it? Well, yeah. I mean, this was, You might someday. You might yeah. actually own it, you know? Well, this... The, again, I go back to the frustration of not being able to find wine bars and restaurants that had some of those ingredients that I wanted. This is prior to even Spruce. But what... The launch, the incubator spruce fine tuned what I had learned, uh, and it it took the 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 idea and exercise of collaboration to an entirely different level, and that's where I learned such great respect for the talent of the people that were around me, and I always had wanted to write descriptions, and I had been 36 before I ever got to Spruce was in my head. I didn't have a name for it. Cafe Vino because I wanted to, there to be um, the concept I had was already in me. I just didn't have a, a vehicle to, to uh, establish or make or manifest it. What was that vehicle? Um, getting the position at Spruce. Okay. A, and, a, a and, network, a support system yeah. to get you to that point where you could execute it. Dan, uh, Dan Sachs came to me one day and said, you know, I really am enjoying what we've been able to accomplish with the wine program. He said, um, I, Spruce is not the only restaurant I've, I want to do. He said, with the success of the wine program, 
Um, he said, you know, I'd love to do a wine bar. I said, well, I've been sitting on this concept. And we started to flesh it out. And uh, like when I told you, making the punch list of how, what things we didn't like about the experience. And that was our motivation. And so we filtered everything through that. Again, like I was saying, interior architecture, uh, the glassware, uh, what the menus felt like and touched and felt, you know, every aspect of it, we're looking at it through the guest experience. And if you do that, uh, that's real hospitality, one of my favorite H words. Yeah. And um, you can't make mistakes. Uh, if your ego is too big, and you think you can force people to do certain things, you'll force them once and they'll never come back through your doors. Yeah, man. I get that. Yeah. I get that. Really, You know, just you want to engage with people and it's supposed to be authentic. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time with Spruce, was this when you were getting the national accolade or was it not? Well, you said you got national recognition, but were you getting those awards? Were you starting to, was this when you were getting recognized for the James Beard? No, was that, later that was, that was later at been 36. Okay. So you mentioned your first ever restaurant that you own was how many square feet? 13,000. 13,000 square feet, not 1,300, 13,000. 13, in downtown Chicago. In downtown Chicago. You did have a business partner, Dan Sachs. Yeah. Uh, how many other partners were there? Well, I should say this, too. The first space we looked at was, I think, maybe 1,500 square yeah. feet. And we, wa- I w- we walked in, and I walked right back out. I was <laughs> like, this ain't it. This is a closet. And, and it was something so strange when I think about all of the changes and the, the evolution of all of this. I have very vivid memories of being almost sensory about things, very sensitive to what was the right fit? See, when you come up with a concept like that and you started to put the pieces together, you're using hospitality as, as your filter. It eliminates so much stuff. Mm. So that we, we stay true to that, you know, our, our mantra and our mission statement. And we really got into um, designing it in such a way that our, our, our team was able to express it and express it clearly so that even the new people that came on were um, able to be basted in our approach and uh, philosophy about food, wine, and hospitality. Yeah. So we've been kind of, I think, talking from a perspective of Assam for the majority of this conversation. Mm-hmm. I want you to put your restaurant tour hat on now. Sure. Um, what was it like opening your first restaurant as far as an owner? What, what responsibilities did you have beyond the wine list? Well, uh, to my surprise, uh, just prior to opening, I found out I was going to have to do staff training. Yeah. Not the wine training, but like service. Which Service standards. If you could, if you could have been back there with me, th- I think there were days where I was up for three days at a time. Wow. Trying to get the doors open. And I had enough on my plate. And it was fortuitous because it brought continuity to our training process. And people were able to get on board because the message was consistent. And drawing their personalities out, they would get excited about the new information that they were getting. So well, I want to make sure I understand it. You, you were, it was fortunate because you brought continuity. And what I hear from that is consistency in the expectation. That's how we said I had, I had never trained, yeah. you know, a whole restaurant of people. And, um, you know, I had, I, 
I had managed some smaller places, but nothing at the, you know this was this was my restaurant, and we had over a hundred some employees to start, and uh, so by the seat of your pants, and um, like I said before, humility, being able to recognize that some people do things better than others, and asking a lot of questions uh, was certainly key and essential to me coming up with, you know, different ways yeah. to approach. Early early in our conversation, you said that you made a, a punch list of what you didn't like about the culture of wine, the wine culture at this point, and how you wanted Bin 36 to be everything opposite from what was standard and typical at that time. Um, and in my, my mind, I was like, you made a list of core values. Yes. Re- relative to wine service. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went further in the conversation just recently and said, hospitality was also your filter. Mm-hmm. So it was these core values and the sense of hospitality that were your filters. Can you go through those, those for us? Do you remember what your, this sure, list, this probably list? Uh, broadly. The, 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 yeah. I'll talk about the ones that I think were essential. Uh, one of them was uh, authenticity that so many places you go out to eat or drink that you feel like you're getting um, canned version of uh, their approach. Hi, my name is such and such. I let I wanted our teams to be individually, authentically themselves. Have you ever been into a high-end restaurant in the United States and you have a server that shows up to your table and they have a slightly Madonna-esque British accent? Okay, yeah. You know that's not who they yeah. are. <laughs> and so uh, for me... Uh, that's why I wanted to get to know them and show genuine interest in them as, as human beings and a part of our, you know, a part of our team. Uh, the other thing was um, respect, respect for the guests and uh, that we honor uh, the people that have chosen. I used to say this all the time. When you look at those, somebody coming through the door or somebody sitting in your, your, your section in the seats, you have to recognize they chose to come here rather than any other place at all. And it's just so we cherish them. We cherish them. And, uh, you know, looking for ways to interact since we were in down. So the opposite of that would be like, oh, like you're, you're lucky to get a seat at our restaurant today. Yeah. You should be thanking us. It's opposite. You chose us. We should be. I've had that happen so many times. I've lost count. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and they don't realize that they're giving themselves away at how shallow they're being. You know, it's like I think it's like the idea of this this restaurant is hot, and um, well, okay, that. And I, I was at a luncheon with a bunch of sommeliers once, and somebody was talking about a restaurant and uh, how uh, exclusive it was, and this one woman who I have the utmost respect, she says, "Well, when I go." to a hot restaurant I always expect to get a little attitude and I was thinking this is why there's such so many problems in our industry because people will accept that and I said that even you are here you're part of the industry and I wouldn't tolerate that somebody that doesn't respect you know the fact that I'm coming into their business I'm spending money in their business um, and then I I'm supposed to expect to get treated poorly uh, not the way, and then th- that really is a great um, opening for how you hiring the right people. If you have stuck up, uh, self-involved, self-absorbed, 
people at your host stand or answering your phone, you're not going to be around very long. Yeah. There's no endless line of people waiting to be abused. Yeah, or marginalized or made no. to feel less, for sure. Um, so, the, the, so these core values, authenticity, respect, I think we're still along that line of re- that vein of respect right now, right? Yeah. Any other items? Knowledge, being competent. So we make all of this information, whether they were menu specs uh, before, you know, a new menu comes out. Uh, chefs didn't do that ordinarily, but it was a requirement um, in our places. Uh, we also, uh, you, we don't sell it if you're not comfortable selling it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can't deliver, if you can't deliver the, the, the experience or communicate the experience, then you, it's not going to help. Yeah. Yeah. Authenticity and truth is another one. For instance, uh, you can use as an example, uh, someone says to you, um, does this dish have onions in it? And you just decide it would be easier for you just to say yes and go on. Instead, that person might throat might swell up and they bear ambulance in the, uh, on their way to the restaurant. And so having respect for the guests that sort of straddles that, that you don't tell them what they want to hear, but tell them the reality. It's so important yeah. that the guest knows you're advocating for them. Yeah. So they say, you know, I'm not really sure about that because I didn't even think about it. It could possibly and go back. And when you come back to the table, you say, you know what? I just wanted to make sure. No, there's none in there, but I always want to check. Yeah. I'm so sucked into this conversation right now. I don't remember if we broke for a sponsor. Sam, do you remember me saying let's break for a sponsor? We haven't broken for a sponsor. <laughs> I don't want to cut you short, though. Are there any other elements to this list? Uh, we have uh, authenticity, respect, knowledge, competency, truth. Just the the commitment to the best ingredients and uh, what your offerings. Uh, you you can be comfortable. I mean, there are people that build wine programs off of based only on cost. That stuff that they can get a cheap price and charge way beyond what they should be yeah. charging. Um, and that that goes back to uh, being honest. Uh, I, there's a way, and I don't know if this is too soon to mention it, but there are ways to design a, a profitable wine program without it being really, you're not, we're going to get into that. Okay. And that's kind of what I hope to get into going forward is, um, you know, what you're teaching today, uh, and as you're consulting and, and making things profitable, because I think there is a level of fiscal responsibility that should be a core value in our industry because you need profitability to, to, to offer security. Yeah. Right. So it should be something that we need to, especially now. Yeah, exactly. Especially now. We are going to take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back to start getting into the more seeing this from a business perspective and how you develop these wine programs responsibly. Today's episode is brought to you by seven shifts. Seven shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants as host of restaurant unstoppable. I chat with a lot of restaurateurs. One thing a lot of them have in common, they use seven shifts. In fact, Every restaurateur using Seven Shifts that I've come across has great things to say about them. With over 700,000 restaurant pros and counting using it today, they're clearly onto something. So what are you waiting for? 
Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, hit labor costs, and keep your entire team connected with drag and drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, labor compliance, tip management, and more. It makes restaurant work a lot easier. And I bet Every member of your team will get value from it. Whether you're a franchise owner or a chief technology officer, a manager working in front of house or back of house, plus it integrates with other restaurant tech systems you already use like your POS, payroll, and more. That is powerful. As a restaurant unstoppable listener, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using seven shifts today. We're back. And now I'm, I'm excited to really start pulling some business lessons out of you. How to build a wine program, how to make it profitable. I don't know exactly where we're going to go, but I'm just going to be receptive to wherever you take us and pull back some layers. So as I'm saying this, what's going through your mind? I was thinking of this. uh, I was at a a tasting event and this person was, uh, I'm going to use the Chenin Blanc from the Loire Valley. And which is the wine that you poured for us. Yeah. Well, this one is from South Africa. Same grape though. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, uh, the person who was speaking was asking people, you know, how many of you are using Chenin Blanc? And um, one of the guys said, I have, a, I have one on the list, but it doesn't sell. Or you're not selling it. <laughs> and I, I just, I interjected and I said, well, first of all, you said you had one, which doesn't show much of a commitment. Yeah. And I said, and second of all, I said, if it's, on your wine list in the drawer somewhere, you're not getting behind it. You're not really promoting it. So pick several dishes on your menu that you have tried and true. This really goes well with this. Yeah. And there's no way you can't sell it. Walking to the table armed and dangerous and saying, you should taste our charcuterie or our oysters with this this particular Chenin Blanc. You're going to sell it all day long. What you're doing is you're baking in the upsell into the menu, into the process. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, there are so many opportunities like that in terms of sales. And, uh, you know, people, you have the ability to arrange and sort out the progression of the meal for them. So why don't you do this, these two right here and this, and then everybody should share this next core, and then you've got this roadmap. Who wants to sit at work all day long and then come and work when they come to a restaurant and trying to figure out what they don't know anything about? Yeah. yeah. So that that's an, an empowering thing if you can get people comfortable uh, using the vocabulary. And then sometimes I tell them not to talk too much. Mm-hmm. You know, don't if you you just got excited about a wine, uh, Moscofilaro from uh, Greece, and you're giving all these descriptions. Shut up and go give them a taste. Mm. So bake in. So I think the the title of this, what we can sum this up into is bake in the upsell. Yeah. Bake in the upsell. Give direction. Make offering right into the written. Set the table. Yeah. With all the right stuff on the table. I used to be in the fashion industry and I was uh, a clothing stylist. 
And if a model brought the wrong shoes, she couldn't couldn't be photographed and we would go barefoot. Mm. <laughs> if you don't have the right stuff, then yeah. just leave it alone. Yeah. But um yeah. So what would you say the next way? This is again the topic we're looking on is building a wire program, but beyond that, um also making it fiscally responsible. Spe- specifically one of the, the huge uh, successes of wine programs I've been involved with was nothing was too precious that if you are if you commit to a certain number of cases, you can sometimes get exclusivity. Say, I want to use uh, this wine for the next four months. Um, can we, uh, you know, have an exclusive on it? The other thing is uh, looking for things that people don't easily find. Unless you're a corporate restaurant, they have to sort of commit to uh, multiple unit uh, place uh, placements. Because there just needs to be a lot of it. Yeah. But if you're wanting to distinguish your program, you should either have a special list that's really small production or unique that, you know, you can get your your wine geeks can get jazzed about and your, your customers who are kind of into that thing. So you can do the mix. But if you are um, aggressive with your distributors uh, and sort of seeking them out, saying, I really want to do something unique uh, with a wine by the glass or a bottle program, you know, doing verticals or horizontals and all these kind of different things, uh, doing features on uh, a particular winery or a region of wine. All of those things set you apart and keep an expectation level very, very high. Now, in terms of cost, you can negotiate prices, better pricing. I, for instance, I was going through, so you know, if I'm going to three to five cases of something a week, I'm in a great position to say, I don't want to pay what other people are paying for this. Yeah. Yeah. So, because volume matters. Yeah. For sure. Volume so, definitely matters. So, back to the, what you just said, you can create vertical or horizontal. What, what do you mean by that? So, uh, verticals are uh, consecutive years, in some cases, ideally. Uh, or uh, like if I have a, a 1990 Bordeaux, I have an 89 of that same producer and an 88 and an 87, that's a horizontal. If, uh, the vertical, or that's a vertical. Yeah, the say. horizontal is the same producer um, and then uh, you end up having, you can do horizontals. What about region? Any region. But yeah, so if could a, could a horizontal be... Uh, going to a region and saying we're going to take a, a swath of wines from this region, a horizontal. Correct. Okay, so Correct. it could be producer or region. Exactly. Got it. And then you could do full-on whole features from particular, like they say they make five wines, one sparkling, you know, two rights and two reds. Uh, that's a feature and it shows your commitment to that particular uh, the talent of that particular producer. So what we're doing, what you're describing right now is ways to add context to the menu. Yeah. So you're not just offering a wine list, but you're saying there's a narrative here. Yeah. These are, we're tasting against different years to talk about how the weather and the environment affects the flavor. Comparative. And mm-hmm. then now you're edu- that's part of the educational process mm-hmm. too. And then you can say, this is the same grape grown in a slightly different environment taste the difference yeah you know different viticulture all this plays a role in it yes uh and that goes into the writing of the menu to 
add context to to educate the staff. I want to make sure I'm staying connected. Yeah, no, I, I, all of those are true. Okay, is mm-hmm. there anything I'm missing? No, I think there's uh, certainly an opportunity with making a commitment to pairing specific dishes, uh, whether it's a whole menu, whether it's a cheese menu. Um, all of those things are finish the sentence for your yeah. guests. Yeah. And they're not, you know, what are we going to order? What's yeah. the best thing on the menu? One thing I'm curious about, um, when you were working at Bin 36, for example, and you had this harmonious, or even when you're at Spruce, and you started this harmonious relationship with the chef, and it was a, 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 it was a collaboration. Yes. Right? Um, how far out are you? How far out are you into the future when you're working on this collaboration? When does that stuff roll out? How much time, how ahead of you should you be from actually delivering the experience? I've never, that, I've never been Does asked that make sense? Am I asked, am I, are you comprehending the question? I think so. Um, like, should there be a month from when you're having this narrative to like, you got to order the, the wine? Oh, you know, I like, see. How intentional are you? Like, how much, how far out into the future should you be with writing the wine list? Is there got to be a conversation or conversations um, and tastings about the direction that the chef wants to go? Um, I can build a program around the food, or the food can build a program around the wine, and you can have both simultaneously. Yeah. But your, it's your relationship with the chef. You can't work with a chef who's um, secretive about their ingredients because you can put a dish together, and my wine will destroy it. If I if you tried to be clever, um, so being um, forthcoming is essential, and really, I guess you establish the the pace when you're collaborating with your chef. He he or she can um, be thinking, you know, for the over the next six months or over the next four months. We want to do this, this, and this. It's too, isn't it too bad that the, or I should say, too good that nature uh, doesn't respect our ideas of seasonality. <laughs> that that you know some things will go in and out of season after you've crafted the dish, and then you have to end up making substitutions because the season's over. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're making me think. Um, when the, like telling these narratives, having horizontals, having a story. Uh, making comparisons and how that really puts together a great wine program. We, we were just um, connecting with Seth, uh, chef Sujan. And I'm afraid to say his last name because it's not right in front of me right now. Sujan. Oh, it's not in his handle either. Help me out. Sujan Sakar. <laughs> if you're listening to this chef, Sujan I apologize. Um, but he connected us with uh, the woman that was in charge of his wine program. And what they're doing is, is really interesting with basically he, he has a history of art and that's a big part of who he is. And they were, they were comparing art with wine mm, in different, yeah. mm-hmm. different deck, uh, like eras of art, or types of art. And, and, and they were, they're using art to describe wine and, they, and their whole art, their whole wine program was based off different art. And that just came into my mind because it's a good example. What would you call that? What are the words that I'm trying to, I'm, I'm stumbling over right now? Well, I, it's creative. Yeah. Uh, number one, yeah. I haven't experienced it, but you're able, you're putting it in a different context for guests to think about and interact with. So, what it, whatever it is that you decide on, you own it, 
and that you stay committed to it, uh, if, if, if it's working, I mean, if people are reacting in a positive way, I, the same thing has been done, been done with wine and music. Mm. And uh, I've seen everything from hip hop music to, you know, symphony, symphonic uh, approach and um, there's all kinds of ways. But if you own that, if that's your space, thank God we're not all the same. Yeah. You know, that you can put your your thumbprint on something. And if it has validity, you know, people will attach themselves yeah and i want to give a little tip to the 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 psalm was tia over at indian if you guys oh yeah i haven't been there yet yeah oh my goodness it was a great experience you have to make it over there but she's doing a fantastic job they're all doing a fantastic job over there that's exciting yeah it really is and one thing i i want to make sure we touch on in our time today is more on the business side so we're talking about obviously the narrative the experience that you're creating is part of the business but on the back end, the side that the, the the guest doesn't see on the books, right? And you you started getting into it with if you're if you're pushing volume, if you're selling things I don't usually sell, those are all leverage points to get a discounted rate, um, so you can increase your margins, right? So what are the other things that the other tricks of the trade to really get the most ROI out of your program? I think if Bin Thirty Six was unique in that it was um, we had flights. So it was, you were able to recover costs because of uh, juxtaposition. One wine was next to another, and you might not make as much off of that with this one wine, but you will on this one because it's unknown and nobody has it. Maybe you can charge enough to compensate for what you might be losing on the other, or if you're losing anything at all. So you're, using, you're leveraging, you're leveraging you're, things It's a like, menu mix. Yeah, you're, you're, leveraging, you're leveraging things like scarcity, and you know that to to drive the, the value of it. Yeah. And you'll, you'll pair that with something that's more common. Yeah. So you can pull, so that adds value. You're putting it on a flight. So it adds value to the collective and you can charge more for the collective. Is yeah. that, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. So for instance, um, I was saying earlier that there were no dogs because everything on the list was attached to some other, some food or cheese, uh, dessert. And you were almost able to guarantee that you would get movement. So, you know, if you're going to get movement, your most popular wines are, you know, some of the obvious ones are things like Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Well, if you price them on the same list and you, you uh, maybe don't get as much of a return because it's, it's, it's paired uh, strategically, you could still recoup what you might have lost if, what you don't want to be found doing is price gouging. It's easy to mark things up, you know, four or five times. Yeah. But can you seek out product that is even maybe unknown where you could make a little more money off of because you, you've you committed to it. You're uniquely attached to it. Yeah. So and they're not going, oh, I saw this at such and such a store for this or that. Yeah. I think the word you use is menu mix. Yeah. What do you... What is the definition in your mind of a menu mix? Menu mix is is certainly covering uh, enough territory in terms of the choices, but it's from a financial, from a business standpoint. If I'm selling more scallops, um, if that's a, a strong item for me, and say my calf's liver is not doesn't move as much, well, first of all, you don't have to uh, purchase as much. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, maybe it's just for that one customer that, that comes in that really wants something like that. And, uh, but you do it in such a way that's going to encourage you. You drop the price down, but you cover. You're not, you know, just breaking even on it. You use a, a, a high performer to offset the low performer. Correct. Got it. Correct. And you do, you, that same concept works with wine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Most definitely. Um, anything else in terms of <clears throat> things you can do to increase the profitability of your program? Uh, teaching, uh, the team that, you know, you can't wait. Don't be passive. Uh, I see that you're almost finished with that wine. Do you want to stay with that wine? Uh, or do you want, you know, should we be talking about something else? Uh, I don't like, even though that is, I don't like yes or no questions. Maybe it's more like, which wine would mm. you like to try now? Mm. That's more savvy than a yes or no. Yeah. You, as a matter of fact, throughout your entire meal, you set up the expectations. Most people here for first courses do a glass of champagne with these things. Yeah. Which, which one of the ones do you want to yeah. pair it with? If you like that, you'll really love yeah. this. Yeah. Can I bring that to you? I remember uh, very vividly working with a guy that uh, would go up to his tables at the end of their meal and you would say you no no dessert menu in hand and say you don't want dessert do you and i'm thinking he never sold any dessert <laughs> i was gonna say did that work <laughs> you asking number one a yes or no question and then you're, you're suggesting yeah, yeah like you've had enough to eat <laughs> yeah yeah you don't want dessert it's yeah. like well we know the answer to that so uh, that's an extreme example, but it actually was, it's true. <laughs> uh, you, you, you show up, or even I have another one business-wise, and it can be very frustrating uh, for a team, but if you run out of a wine, and so for some reason nobody caught that you were out of this wine or you were on the floor and there were only a couple bottles left and someone stole, sold it right out from under you, if that happens to you, do not go back to the table without another bottle mm. of something. Mm -hmm. but, I know you were asking for this, but someone snatched it already. Good, great taste. Um, but I have this, which, uh, you know, we brought in special or our sommelier is just incredibly excited about this producer. And I even used to go for as far as, but don't you dare show up without yeah. something in your hand. Because that's, that's taking... It's, it's creating resistance. A lot of times the service staff doesn't have a sense of the real time that's being lost in those situations. And it, it's, it's almost like you're dumping the responsibility on the guest, mm -hmm. which is, I think, horrific. Yeah. You know, people will remember that. But uh, the other thing that I, I also recommend doing is if I come to the table with something else um, or I've talked you into ordering something, I've, I have the nerve to say, if you don't care for it, I'll drink it. And I mean that. Yeah. We, we, you know, it's, if I've spent time describing something to you and you decide to go along and then you don't like it, um, and I know a lot of res restaurateurs would, would fight me on that. But I Why believe, do you think that is? Why would they fight you? 
because they don't want to. They think wasting that they're wasting a bottle when somebody ought to be. If you've opened the bottle already, then it's a wine available now by the glass. Yeah. And you, I would have the team running around the room. Oh, we just got this this such and such wine. So, do you think that's the real reason for pouring a taste and before you hand it over to the guest? Because once it, that gets dropped on the the table. For health well, reasons, you're you doing can't that, take that bottle back. But you, aren't you aren't you doing that to see if it's flawed? Well, that's what I'm saying. Is there like a catch? To, is that is this a big like you know? Obviously, you're doing that, but is that an excuse for the real reason? Which is, I'm not going to give you this bottle if you don't like it because I can take this bottle back. Is that like a secret of the industry that this is the excuse we use that for the guest perspective, the narrative we're telling. So the guest thinks that we're having their back. I never really thought of know. it that way. I, uh, but I do believe that um, it shows uh, care about you care about their experience and you value them. It's kind of a win-win because both parties are That's winning it. in that situation. I'm not going to drop this table, this 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 bottle on the table if I come back five minutes from now and you tell me that you don't like it because now I can't. I got to dump this. I out. can't do anything. Yeah. yeah. So now you're giving the opportunity for the to, to care. You're coming from the perspective of the guest. I care about your experience. I want me to make sure this isn't flawed. Do you like it? We care about this before I make before I, I force you to commit to it. Yeah. Right. But but it's a win win because if it's not flawed and just, they don't like it, now you're not wasting the bottle. That's you can right. sell it by the glass. So there's exactly it's, it's, there's there's value there. Um, am I stepping on your toes? No, not okay, at cool. all. <laughs> awesome. Not at all. Um, you know, that's one of those things. That's, it can be a signature. Um, experience for people who, who you know when we used to bring something by for them to taste first of all like they looked at one another like they felt special yeah and so those are oh those are opportunities you keep track of and you fold into your you know modus operandi yeah. uh, this is who we are uh you can uh we, we can recover that wine but don't turn it into this adversarial thing where you got to have to take this wine because you you know you ordered it or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, mm, go back and just sell the wine. Yeah, Brian, I'm really enjoying our time together. I really am. I'm looking at the clock. You're digging like, in. Uh, yeah. some places I hadn't thought about. The time goes by so fast when I'm enjoying the conversation. This time has flown by. Uh, we still have some time left, but I want to make sure, is there anything that we did not discuss today that you were hoping we would discuss, that you were hoping that you could uniquely bring this to the conversation? I want to make sure we have time to get that People out. that um, made a difference that if it had not been for them, uh, I've, some of the things that I was able to accomplish, uh, the people that just were so pivotal, and then you know, mentors, that's everything from mentors to business people. Um, I don't know if you were aware of it, but I was making 12,000 cases of wine a year. I was aware of that. You had yeah. your, your brand. You partnered with your business partner, Duncan. You had Duncan and Sachs. Duncan and Sachs and then the Bin yeah. 36 brand. I knew about that, but I honestly thought that more of the listeners would probably resonate with your with your time in the restaurants. Mm-hmm. But I, we should absolutely give a nod well, to that. I get you. It's, it's worth uh, mentioning simply because... I found I didn't walk into this saying, "Oh, I got to make wine." I thought whatever we could do to make wine feel more approachable, like they could meet the winemaker night after night in on the floor, and then the winemaker they they think comes out of heaven, you know, and the bottles float down to earth. Yeah. So I was trying to uh, make that an approachable conversation for the 
the, the full we, ex- life ex- yeah life I'll, cycle of well wine. here's here's the wine we made this you know this is this is our signature and that was huge because when I started doing it I had um, the first collaboration that I had was with a winemaker from Beckman Vineyard Steve Beckman uh, small family owned uh, winery probably considered maybe medium size now uh, do they just inc- I was already attached to uh, and loyal to the products they were making because I could always depend on the high level of quality. And I learned a lot from him when I'd go out and visit uh, the property. Uh, he was showing me things that were, you know, he was going to release. And I learned everything about like wood and not wood and uh, organic and biodynamic uh, winemaking and uh, farming and all of those things. And it, like I said, it started organically because the more I would, uh, longer I was in it, the deeper I would want to get into how is this, how are you able to achieve that? And if you're selling and committed to product from some of these, these incredibly talented people, they want to make some things available to you. You're like, you're a cheerleader yeah. to them. So people like that, uh, Minor Family, uh, Dave Minor, uh, Paul Hobbs, uh, there's, uh, Ernst Luisen from uh, Germany, all of those people made fruit available to me so that I could make wine. Now, the big one was uh, I was attending um, Hospice in Rhone when I was trying to buy a barrel way, way, way back in probably 98. And I was chatting with a gentleman there explaining to him, getting ready to open in 36 and what it was going to be like. And he's like, well, that sounds really exciting. And, um, so anything, anyway, so I'm at the restaurant and one of my distributors comes in. And he says, Brian, you know, these wines are really great because I was doing them on smaller scale. He said, would you like to make more? And I said, sure. He brings in this guy, Bill Legan, who um, I didn't realize it at the time, but he ended up selling his uh, a brand of his uh, for the highest amount of money it had ever been paid for a brand. And um, he said, yeah, we like your wines too. And he said, um, why don't you come out and kick the tires at the winery and see if, you know, you the stuff we have you want to work with. He sent, uh, flew his winemaker, Adam Lazar, to Chicago. And we it's like we had always been best friends our entire life. I went back with him and started you know, sampling my way around the winery and deciding that I wanted to make all the major grape varieties uh, for our list, like Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Zinfandel, Pinot Noir. They needed to have the Bin 36 label on it because those were the categories that were selling the most. And uh, we got started. And when a few a couple of years later, he, uh, Bill Legan flew 40 distributors from around the country. Wow to Chicago and they were staying in the hotel above the restaurant and we had our first meeting. It was a two day affair and uh, Bill got up to introduce me and he said, Brian thinks the first time we met is when I came here to the restaurant uh, a couple years ago. He says he's forgotten that I met him in back in 98 at the hospice to Rome and I was asking him about what he was doing. He never like revealed that yeah. <laughs> to me at that moment. It was like it blew me away. Um, yeah. He's an uh, incredible gentleman. 
and uh, just so authentic and uh, generous. Uh, I've had a lot of that um, from a business, you know, from an experiential standpoint. I've been blessed with uh, the number of people that um, showed up. Mm. They just showed up. And it made me feel um, that my life has had favor. Like the, the hand of God has been over my life that when you're intentional about something, uh, I know some people call it the power of attraction, but it's we're not here because of uh, happenstance. And that's why purpose has always been a big deal for me. We're not pinballs in a machine. We're here for other people. So the stuff that I'm doing um, is always an extension of me, but it's for other people. What you're doing, telling, having people tell their stories, is you're expanding uh, a contributor, a life contributor, and you're making it accessible to so many more people that you know wouldn't have known before. So I have a very profound sense of um, purpose, and a lot of the training that I do is to pull out um, the, the gifts and talent. Not only are you purposefully here, but you've been given the gifts, you know, unusual gifts that nobody else has or even in the proportion that you do to accomplish, you know, what people call legacy, you know, what they say about you after you're gone. Um, so I'm, I'm constantly aware that there's no coincidences. People don't come into your life by happenstance even if the circumstances seem so. You want to you hear something really, I don't know if I was going to mention anything like this, but there's something about, people sometimes have this idea that the only people who can teach them something or to give them a tool they can use has to be somebody they get along with. Mm. I think this is a, a huge deal. You actually... There are people that are sent into your pathway and they have a tool you can use. But because you are, have animosity towards them or them towards you, it makes it difficult, but it doesn't make it impossible for you to get the tool. Yeah. You have to be humble. Yeah. You have to humble yourself and get over the spirit of offense. Mm. This is this is this is key. So the spirit of offense says, I don't need anything from them or they don't they make me feel uncomfortable. But if you reach over a fence and get that tool and keep it moving. Yeah. You gain. This is where I believe that the power of shared vision and shared mission and shared values come into place. You might not get along or might be compatible with that individual on a personality standpoint. But if you have the same vision, if you have the same mission and the same values, you can get over that fence That's it. to go beyond because we're here for the same purpose. Yeah. We're here for the same endpoint, and we recognize each other's value or not. Yeah. Or you, you're not maybe here for the same purpose, but what they can give you. Remember we, we've been talking about purpose and how everybody's here for a reason that person, even if they don't agree with you or it isn't even the same um, category of business or uh, whatever it is you're doing, they still may have something that complements if you were able to, uh, you know, uh, gain and wrap your head around it. Like, oh, 
I can apply this here. And the fact that it was probably a struggle for you to get to that point makes it incredibly valuable. Yes. Because yes. it's not obvious. Yes. I love this, Brian. And I want to, when I listen, I'm always trying to, to read between the lines and to, to connect the dots of what you've been sharing with us and other lessons I've learned in the nearly 1,000 episodes we've done. And when you were sharing um, the story of how you started uh Duncan and Sachs, the the label, right? Yeah. There was three parties. It was you, uh, the distributors, and Bill, right? What was Bill's role? Like what? What? what Bill was the, the, or, at then at yeah. that point was the uh, president of Han Estates, H A H N. So if, if you were the the if you were the the program writer, right, where you're sharing your vision of what the wines will be and what it will look like and the story behind that, then the distributors would get that story, the brand out to the general public. What was, what would Bill's role be? Bill facilitated my access. Facilitated to your fruit. Access. Yes. So not only were Connector. we, yeah, well, not only was I able to access their fruit, a uh, specific fruit, sourcing. but I, yeah, sourcing. And they had additional, uh, vineyards that they purchased from. Got it. So, so he was a grower. I was able to use exactly what I wanted to use. Got it. So the where I'm going with this is sometimes when you're creating a brand, if it has legs, you can bring it across the country, right? Into different markets. Mm-hmm. But a brand doesn't just have to be a restaurant. It can be a program. Yeah. A program can have legs. A program can challenge. Can, can travel. And I think they probably saw this in what you were doing and how special it was that they saw, man, Brian can really sell. He can really put together a package. He can, he can tell a narrative. He can put together something and, and we can find markets that this package that, that has legs can travel. So from a business person's perspective, you don't have to scale a business. You can scale a program. Some people, some chefs will do this with a menu item that they can par bake and freeze and then sell on shelves in retail, Mm -hmm. right? You're doing the same thing with a brand of a collection of wines. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool way to see beyond the brick and mortar. Yeah. I didn't have the, um, the know how to take what I was producing for my restaurant. Cause the initial stuff that I was doing, uh, with Beckman and minor family, and Paul Hobbs, I could only sell in the restaurant by law. So it was Bill who took the thing, excuse me, nationally. And in some cases, internationally, we were selling in China and, uh, and in the UK for a while, in addition to 40 markets around the country. So that wasn't something that I could do. But like I said, someone came into my, my life and facilitated taking the dream I had so much yeah, bigger yeah. than what I had figured out. We got to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. And I think we're going to skip the speed round today because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm really curious. I want to get like one more nugget from you about the future of the industry specific to wine, where you think wine is headed, where sure. we should be. I, I would like to get that perspective from somebody who follows it so closely. And then we'll call some folks out. We'll, we'll let the, the listeners know how we can connect with you. And we'll wrap it up. Okay. This episode is brought to you by pop menu. Look, I don't need to explain to you that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. 
pop menu answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. This is because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located or what are your hours? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the pop menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links via text message pop menu answering picks up your phone call 24 7 365 days a year allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most your guests in-house the time is now to prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often, Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RS. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back, and I would love to get your perspective on trends. I, as much as I hate the word trends, and I don't think you should follow trends, I do think that it's, it's good to know what's happening, the overarching major trends. So what's happening in the world of wine? Where is the world of wine going? What, what, do the, what does the consumer want today? Thankfully, um, I think what the consumer wants is what the... Um the buyers, the buyers set the pace for trends. People don't just wake up one day and say, we should be doing uh, wines from Croatia. Somebody's got to be the cheerleader for that category. So when you say buyers, you're talking about the buyers for the distributors. Buyers from retail and restaurants. Okay. And then, the, then you, what you really are talking about at the beginning is the importer. Okay. Um, or the, if it's domestic... Um, the distributor that's 
you know, taken on this particular winery and their brands uh, to promote. But it's at the either either the buyers are going to buy in and that's how you get it on the shelf or on on the restaurant menus. Um, that's how they to me, it really becomes a trend. OK, so the buyers and the writers help. The writers, the people that write the menu and sell the wine, or the, the writers, oh, the, the publications, yeah, in the industry, the yeah. wine industry. Yeah. So, where if if we're looking to buy it, or if we're looking to build a wine program, and we're curious about what's trending, even though I hate the word trending, but what does the consumer want right now? Where, what would be a good idea or a good approach to a wine program? Over delivering for the price. You can really earn a lot of trust by having wines that drink. I used to call it drink beyond their price. Okay. In other words, sometimes uh, I remember one night a gentleman wanting a very classic California Cabernet and it was expensive. And I remember the team getting mad at me because I sold him. We were out of it and I sold him, talked him into a bottle that I think was maybe thirty forty dollars less, and they flipped out. They loved it, but there was always a um, a gouging um, sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for affinity attached to uh, the wine industry. That when you go out or any kind of sales situation, that you somehow were being led into. Purchasing more something more than you wanted to purchase, it's like going into shop for a suit. Yeah, and I walk around and I'm saying, you're a big "No, spender. I'm just looking." Yeah, yeah you don't want to lose that opportunity. Yeah, you I'm not. Upsell. I'm not. I'm sitting in your restaurant. I'm not just looking, or I'm, I'm, uh, I'm walking through your your designer store. I'm there to buy something, and uh, there's a distrust. I think sometimes because people have had maybe b- bad experiences or they've been burned. Yeah, but you're um, gonna be. St- steered in the direction that's more beneficial to you and the, te- the, 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 the check yeah. total than what you're truly looking you're for. You're not being authentic. So if you take a hit on the, on the check to give something that is going to add value to your life and is going to be more direct to what you're looking for and not what's going to benefit me, but what's going to benefit you. I want to make will, you an expert. I, will, want you to tr- yeah. I want you to turn you on to something that you would have never maybe done on your own. You might not win in that transaction, but the next transaction when yeah. they come back because you made such a great experience, you'll, you'll recoup that. And then the third time, the fourth time, now you're 10 xing that, yeah. that relationship. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what about, um, we're, the mission statement of Restaurant Unstoppable is to inspire. We've done that. Empower, definitely done that. We're much better off with our, our, our business knowledge of wine after listening to you, but also to transform the industry and to, to go into the future intentionally. How, when I say that, going into the future intentionally, where do you think we are and where we could be going to make a better industry? Uh, certainly, what I've seen lifted, lifted off of the wine industry is... Um, a little bit of um, a lot has gone on to um, address some of the exclusivity. Um, there is a uh, there's a couple programs, uh, the uh, Roots Wine Roots. Um, think of my name. My head is going blank. Um, wine Unify that are uh, helping the Roots Fund 
and Wine Unified. Got it. They're um, creating opportunities for minorities to enter the, the uh, industry, which uh, in some cases was unkind to them and uh, uninviting. And um, I'm a person of color. Uh, I remember uh, famous chef Marcus Samuelson had his uh, writer, his editor, call me to contribute in his book. Uh, he said, you know, in terms of the wine experience, and the person asked me, you know, what's been your experience? Have you experienced discrimination and uh, things like that? And I'm like, yeah, sometimes. But I was always too wrapped up in the goals of what I was trying to do to let it kill my dreams. To stop you. Yeah. yeah. And I said, and then I learned after that, the only color when I was, you know, running these successful programs, the only color that mattered at that point was green. Mm. So I didn't grow up with um, limitations or crutches. My parents raised me in such a way that I didn't think there was anything that I couldn't do. And I try to pass that on to other people. Uh, to, to say, like I said, I feel like I've had favor on my life um, and a curiosity, a childlike curiosity wrapped in enthusiasm. And that has served me well. So along this vein of what needs to change with the industry is maybe, when I, if I'm reading between the lines, being more open and receptive to diversity and yeah. opportunity. We, and and the, certainly the, um, there's been a lot of scandals. Um, Me Too uh, unearthed some really nasty stuff happening, not only in restaurants, but in the wine industry. Um, that a lot of people were excluded because of gender and um, uh, their ethnicity and things like that. So I, I, uh, I believe that there's an awareness of that without using the word woke, but there's an awareness now that uh, you need to, uh, diversity is a good thing. Yeah. It, 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 you, you're going to get perspectives that you may not have gotten before and see, whole entire yeah. market's opening up yeah. because uh, you're being sensitive. Yeah. I, speaking for, as a white man, you know, I, I sometimes I see the world and I, and I try to empathize with people who are white, who might not be aware of their racism. I think a lot, a lot of people are kind of blind to it. Just like we're blind to the air around us. We don't realize that there's oxygen and we're, we're being, cause it's everywhere. You know, mm -hmm. we're surrounded by it that we don't see it. It's the world we came up in. It's our, it's our normal. Yeah. So, like that, that is what um, systemic racism is. We it's, it's built in we're surrounded by it. And um, if I can reconnect my train of thought, um, sometimes after reading like white fragility. And so you want to talk about race and trying to understand that perspective so I could become a better version of myself. I think that the, the, the language, sometimes the, the conversation around race, white people, I think, get offended because they feel like I'm not racist. I'm not saying these things. I, I, but in, when you get offended, it shuts off your mind to, to getting the perspective and really trying to see and empathize with the other side. Yeah. And, and I think it's important that we shut off that part of our brain where it's like, I'm not, I'm offended. I'm not a racist. Why, why would you assume right. that I'm, I'm racist. So I could take that another step. I'm not preoccupied with racism. <laughs> yeah. I've been black all my life. Yeah. I didn't just wake up 
and sort of noticed that sometimes you were treated differently or poorly. Um, I'm not preoccupied with yeah. it. And which is a very liberating thing because you can show up and every black child is told you're going to have to be twice as good. You're going to, you know, those kinds of lessons as a child. So I'm, I'm not preoccupied. Yeah. With, I know it exists. Um, you've shown me your hand if you make a slip or you, uh, you try to box me and, or you, you, what you're saying to me is that you're not good enough, but you don't come right out and say that. Mm. So that's why I'm not preoccupied with racism. I, I you, you've, sh- you've shown me your hand in so many different ways as somebody who thinks they're clever and that they're hiding it. I already know. It's, not, it's nothing new. If you go through an experience more than once, it's now a rerun. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a black thing. People have that gene, that ability. They already know. Yeah. You're not, you're not surprising them. They're, but it's, it's, not, it's not my issue to deal yeah. with. So I'm speaking as somebody who grew up in New Hampshire, right? Probably one of the, if not the most least diverse state in the country <laughs> in the top two or three. Never been there. Right. It, it's, it's, it's like 95% white people walking around, right? No. Um, maybe 90%. Uh, it's actually moving in the direction of more diversity, and I love it. But I grew up in a world where all I knew of diversity is what I saw on TV, mm. right? And what I heard from older generations. I didn't get that perspective. I didn't expose myself to that. Um, so I didn't really understood it, understand it. And it wasn't until I got out into the world and I started going to different parts of the world and, and getting that diversity and that perspective that I fully started to understand it. But I think that there's two parts here. I think a lot of white people get defensive because they, they're, they're like, not me. I'm not racist. Like, like don't group me up with that. Uh, and they shut their minds off. And I think the other part of this, that a little bit of, of human nature, even if you don't think you're racist and why you need to be a, aware of the reality of it, I think human nature, we tend to gravitate p- towards people like us that share yeah. our culture. Sure. That we Birds of the feather flock together is the, the expression I use. When you make up 55% of the total population, white people make up 50, I think the last time I checked, it was, White people make up 55% of the total population of America. Mm-hmm. So there's a disadvantage right there that if you tend to flock towards people like you, it's not fair for everybody who isn't like you, no. who might be a person of color. So just being aware of that, that just existing in this world where there's more opportunity for you to flock to more people like you, you're instantly at an advantage. You yeah. have to be open to that to recognize, hey, if, I, if we're going to make this a better world, like I need to... I need to look over my inclination to go towards people who are familiar and like me who have the same culture to let in other people. Right. And I think that's the part that's not discussed that, but so much of the the conversation is negative about you just don't like us. And that's when people get defensive. Like, no, I'm not like that, but you have to look that even if you aren't like that, there's more you have to do to make it equal. Mm -hmm. What do you, I just think that there's now an effort uh, and an awareness and I think that's good. I also think it is a stimulating um, ap- opportunity for people of color to do things in their own communities um, and not have it be the success. See, I've always thought it was a big mistake to have separate uh, award shows 
or like I hate the terminology. Well, she's a black artist. You know what I'm saying? I agree. Or with she's you. a black. That the identity politics has been horrible for this country. It's been horrible. So the first, so when you have those, those other shows and things like that, you, what you're saying is uh, we don't get to compete on this in the same playing field. Yeah, and I, I, I get that. But when you say when they sort of out of the side eye, oh, it's black art, or you it's know, just art. It's just art. Yeah, man. And this is you. You just clearly articulated my issue. And Sam's off camera right now, and he can t- attest that I get so irritated because I get publicists reaching out to me. Like I get five emails a day, and whenever it's a, a person of color or a female or a person, a woman who is a person of color, that's literally the subject line. Yeah, of you should get this person on the show. I've been the token black guy in so many uh, tables and uh, forums and so on and so forth. And I, just enough. Yeah, I remember going to these huge, very uh, large uh, industry events and um, public food and food and wine uh, different events and things. And um, I'm the only person there. Yeah. But but the the reason why I get so upset and frustrated when I see that because the the initial thought I think of is it shouldn't fucking matter, it shouldn't matter. We should and what I think drives and perpetuates. But you a lot can't of, legislate it. Yeah, I think what drives and perpetuates a lot of the the the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, the 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 division of society and the sides that happen is the that publicists and the media perpetuate the trending topics. They want it that way because they can get more airtime and, and uh, you know, it's, they may, when something's salacious anyway, um, I think a lot of the adversarial, uh, the racism message is overblown. Yes. And um, I'm just not going to participate. I know that there have been things that have been done or opportunities that I didn't get. Guess what? So what? Create some more. Oh, make build your own doors. Don't let it stop. You know, and be unstoppable, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And I just there's so many people I admire um, who were more um, attracted to my enthusiasm than they were worrying about what color I was. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much, man. I've really enjoyed this conversation. This was good. It helped me, reminded me of some of the great people that uh, were a big influence in my life. Yeah. And, yeah. It was a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you, Juliet Gus, for this introduction. Well worth it. <laughs> Wonderful friend. Yes. And we can't say goodbye without having you call somebody out. I really want this to, to be my North Star, my guiding compass of who I should be getting on the show, who I should be uh, making an example of. So on the, along that, that idea of who inspires you, who do you think is somebody who needs legacy, who should have a story be told, sure. who, who has something we can learn from, who comes to mind? Uh these are people locally. Uh, Paul Kahn, who was the chef, is the chef, and they have uh, their restaurant group, One Off Hospitality, yep. uh, Avec. Donnie Madia is a part of that group. Donnie Madia, yeah. Madia. And Thank their you. partners, brilliant, brilliant people. You have the Boca group headed up by yep. uh, I've had Kevin Bain. I've had Kevin Bain on the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, Aldo Zaninotto. Have okay. you heard of him? No. Aldo's not only a good friend, I learned an awful lot about wine. He specialized in, uh, in certainly Italian wines. He has an authentic 
Piemontese restaurant called Osteria Lange. Okay. Here's, There's no way I'm going to be able to write that down. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, I'll look it up. <laughs> uh, I'll give you his information. Uh, he now has created a restaurant group. Uh, he's got three establishments. The second one is Testaccio, sort of a Roman a Roman classic Roman Mediterranean style restaurant. And then underneath is a, a French speakeasy called Swaf. Okay. S O I F. And he comes up with these incredible, very authentic concepts. And um, they're beginning to really grow. And his family is involved, his uh, son and daughter, which I've known them since they were little kids. And uh, so it's very. It's it's amazing to to see what he's been able to create. Uh, Michael Lakowitz, where I've worked uh, for about a year uh, or so now, and um, he has incredible concepts. Uh, he's been around. He uh, set uh, the North Shore on the map in terms of. Uh, so this is funny to me, or probably not in a funny ha ha way, but he's got a Michelin level restaurant. But Michelin, a tire company that has the Michelin guide that restaurants won't go to the suburbs <laughs> to rate it. <laughs> I just think it's uh, it's hilarious. hilarious, and so it's be- <laughs> almost become a joke. Um, I love what Michael does in terms of his food. His talent is unquestioned, and his longevity, and he's very opinionated, and but he's one of the most loyal. Uh, big-hearted individuals I've ever met. He creates opportunities for people, and I've seen him transform lives. And uh, just one of my favorite, favorite people. Beautiful. Brian, thank you so much. Uh, Donnie, Kevin, past guests in the show, uh, stay in touch with them. Would love. They know that they have a welcome, uh, open invitation to come back on the show anytime oh, to pick great. up the conversation. Aldo, Paul, and Michael, look out. I'm coming after you. <laughs> I'd love to get you on the show. And if we were inspired by your story today, uh, imp- we feel empowered by your knowledge and we'd like to continue to work with you, continue to learn from you. What's the best way to connect? Uh, you, you know, my, you want my, uh, contact Con- yeah, information. Please. I'm uh, on Instagram, uh, O H B R I O N like O'Brien kind of a twist. And, um, I'm on LinkedIn and, uh, my Facebook stuff, all of that stuff is, uh, I'm a very visual person. So uh, when I grow up, I'll probably be a photographer and or <laughs> painter. Um, what other addresses can I give? I mean, you? maybe if your email, web, email, business, yes. business website. Yes. Uh, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, 30, the number 36 at iCloud.com. Got it. Beautiful. And it's down to earth wine concepts. LLC. LLC is the business. Brian, thank you so much, man. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. The pleasure is mine, truly. There is no questioning. You are. Very humbling. Unstoppable. (laughs) Cheers. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Brian Duncan. And man, what a sweet guy this dude is. Uh, the hospitality he rolled out for us, the spread he rolled out for us, uh, welcoming us into his home. And man, just what a sweet gentle soul this guy was thank you so much brian and just your your approach to wine philosophy and uh what you were able to do with bin 36 man uh super 
inspiring story and tons of value in today's episode. So if you guys are finding value in this podcast and you want more podcasts just like this one, we could use your support. There's a ton of ways you can support the show. One way is by letting us know who you think needs to be made an example of. Who Who's killing it in your community? Who are the leaders? Who are the people everyone goes to for advice and mentorship? I want to find out who these people are. I want to get them on the show. I want to make an example of them. And as you're listening to this, uh, we are one day in Atlanta and uh, we got room for a couple more interviews. So email me, Eric at restaurant Maybe we can make a last second interview happen while we're out in Atlanta. And, um, after this trip, the plan, I believe is to kind of take a break throughout the holidays, slow down a little bit. And, uh, we're back on the road in January. We're going to be headed to, I believe Scottsdale. That's the plan. Scottsdale, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, that area. So give us plenty of, uh, you know, heads up on who we should be making an, an example of out there. Uh, the other ways you can support the show, you can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can subscribe to this podcast if you have not yet. And if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're trying to build that up. We're creating shorts over there and we're creating uh, a mini version of the podcast, only about 20 minutes long, uh, more digestible, more suited for YouTube. So if that's your pace, go check it out. And you can come hang out in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. And the vision for the network is for me to literally just get out of the way and extend trust to the tools, services, and individuals who've been referred referred to us organically over the past nine years. And one big lesson we've learned here at Restaurant Unstoppable is you can't build a business that hinges on you or a one particular person. You need to build systems and then rely on those systems to keep people honest. And that's what we're going to be doing over the network. Uh, and then I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to to the people who make this podcast possible. Sam from SabinSam.com for the videography and Jared from Sumadre Podcast for the editing and copy. I can't do it without my team and I've got a great team behind me. So that's it for today. Thank you guys so much. Until next time, peace out.